You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 429, It Only Takes One Little Mistake. Last time, the ships of Operation Jubilee had gotten underway at 8 p.m. August 18, 1942, led by Commodore John Hughes Hallett aboard the destroyer HMS Cow. It was a warm and moonless night, i.e. a good start, but would it stay that way for the hundreds of ships behind Hughes Hallett? That was the million-dollar question. As the boats or vessels glided over the water's surface, there was much activity on board as Bangalore torpedoes and smoke bombs were passed around. While this was going on, everyone else was staring at their maps for the thousandth time. Nothing could be allowed to get in the way of success, certainly not forgetting the terrain as shells started landing around one. Besides this, the men got in their hands the brand new Bren guns and worked them over, but it was the Mills bombs, or hand grenades, that gave all pause, as already during this short voyage, one had gone off, which killed two people and injured a third. David Luce, Hughes Hallett's deputy, wrote of this moment, There were hundreds of ships and craft, as far as the eye could see, wherever we looked and knowing that all were under our command and committed to the greatest amphibious operation since Gallipoli, had a certain dreamlike quality. Indeed, with the 237 ships of all kinds around them, it must have seemed like the war was about to turn in their favor. But the first thing that Hughes Hallett had to worry about was getting his vessels through a recently laid minefield. And just behind the Kalp were nine infantry landing ships, eight destroyers, a sloop, 24 tank landing craft, or LCTs, and these were carrying the Churchill tanks of the Calgary Regiment, 
Next were the six anti-aircraft flak landing craft, or LCFs, seven French chasseurs, four steamboat guns, and 12 motorboat guns. But of course, all these together were carrying as many landing craft as they could for the 6,088 troops. Thus, it was the landing craft that were the bottleneck part of Jubilee. Of course, as time was a major issue, two flotillas of minesweepers were already out ahead, clearing two paths about a quarter of a mile wide each through the minefield. The openings were marked by buoys with green flags and lanterns attached. Not that this made them easy to spot for the crews on board, which was the point. They needed to be just bright enough for the sailors to see, but not for the Germans to notice. By 1.10 a.m., now August 19th, the ships were entering the channel proper, which is when the American journalist Quentin Reynolds, noticing the stronger waves, asked, couldn't we take it easy through this minefield? To which Sub-Lieutenant Boyle replied, with a chuckle, if you hit a mine going at 12 knots, it has the same effect as if you hit one traveling at 2 knots. Basically, a ship would make contact or it would not, and time was the other enemy for this outing. By 1.45 a.m., the fleet was past the last buoy. The enemy now was less than 30 miles away. It may be remembered that the Rileys, a Canadian regiment, was a part of the 2nd Division of the 1st Canadian Corps, and the commanding officer of the Rileys was one Colonel Robert Labatt. His father had commanded an earlier version of this regiment in the Great War, so Bob, or Bobby, was justly proud of his position and his men. But there may have been a catch. Among the Rileys, a regiment of the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry, was a Captain Dennis Whitaker. He would go on and do amazing things during the Dieppe Raid, but most notably survive, when many or most around him would die or be captured. But even before their vessels had left the coast, Whitaker did not think much of his commanding officer, that being Colonel Bob Labatt. But to be fair, it did come from first-hand experience. Whitaker had joined the regiment in 1936 and quickly surmised that Labatt could have been doing more to ready his officers and men. Whitaker would claim many years after the war, the officers had no real training. They simply played soldier on weekends. The CO, Colonel Bob Labatt, he was a stockbroker. As for Labatt, Whitaker had a specific example of what caused him to lose respect for the CO. When the regiment conducted an 11-mile march before passing a review stand, Labatt was nowhere to be seen until he arrived by car, just out of sight of the dignitaries, just in time to lead the soldiers onto the parade ground. This kind of behavior destroys morale, Whitaker said, and he would have more to complain about before this raid was over. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. 
It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. As zero hour approached, 4.50 a.m., the various officers and commandos went over their orders and objectives again. The various units would arrive on shore and take out the large guns to either side of Dieppe. The attacking units would land to either side of the city and a bit further afield. Thirty minutes later, the Rileys would land on White Beach just in front of Dieppe, with the Essex Scottish doing the same thing at Red Beach, landing in front of Dieppe, just to the left or east of the Rileys. When they were on shore, they would be joined by Calgary tanks, and altogether, they would take the town and let units start destroying things of value. As stated before, tactical surprise would be taking the place of a heavy naval and or aerial bombardment. In other words, luck was being factored into the plans. The other leg of this wobbly table was the far wings of the enemy being neutralized first thing namely the artillery batteries, the Goebbels battery at Barneval to the east and the Hess batteries at Varengaville to the west, and of course the large guns closer to Dieppe, just on either side of it. If those guns were not taken out, then the Rileys and the Essex Scots would be wiped out when trying to come to shore. Even further, if enough enemy guns were not silenced, then the very fleet itself could sustain major losses. Fortunately for the Allies, that is, the troops, there were gullies in each cliff that were in front of the large guns, closest to the beach. If these could be used to make the approach, this may just work. Hence the commandos were told, time is of the essence. As the various units got aboard their respective LCA, Colonel Lavat told his men, This is not the hour for a speech. None of us feel very strong at this hour in the morning, but I'd like to say this is the toughest job we've had, and I expect every man to contribute something special. I know you'll come back in a blaze of glory. Remember that you represent the flower of the British Army. Going back to the gullies on the beach, both sets of commandos had the same idea. To the east of Dieppe, At Bernouval, elements of three commando, with Dunford Slater in command, would land to either side of the Gevel's gun and, in a pincer movement, silence the gun and its crew. To the west of Dieppe, Levant would have number four commando broken up as well. One group would approach the Hess gun near the Srival, pretty much head-on, which sounds like suicide, but in truth, they were the decoy. Another section of commandos, led by Lovat, would land a bit further west to approach the Hess guns from the rear. As they were the real attack, delays could not be tolerated. For every second those guns stayed active, the decoy group, led by Derek Mills Roberts, would be whittled away. As dangerous as this sounds, and it was, the units landing just outside Dieppe had to deal with the slopes which had machine gun nests within them like the Royals of Canada, who would be landing at Blue Beach, just east of the town. 
Not only was there landing within the Germans' defensive perimeter around Dieppe, but there was a gun battery there as well. That had to be taken out. The Camerons had the same job, just on the western side of Dieppe. Where they landed was just outside the enemy's perimeter, but there was again large guns close by. So that was their objective. And of course, the machine gun nests along the way. At 3 a.m., when the fleet was making its approach, U.S. Ranger Sergeant Marcel Swank, one of the three Rangers with the Camerons, was busy asking himself, how tough am I? He had survived commando training and he had survived combat, but that seemed relatively easy now compared to making this entire trip in a landing craft, what with hours of the small boat rising and falling with the waves. Toughness, it seems, comes in many forms. While Swank was trying to not toss his cookies over the side, Lieutenant Michael Bateson, Royal Naval Officer, was asking himself, how will this play out? And the only answer he could think of was, if one had only to reverse in one's imagination what would happen had Jerry raided Dover or New Haven in force, and the consequences to that force, to know what we are tackling. Once the fleet was through the minefield, the ships began to fan out to get ready to offload their respective troop complement. The far two flanks of this fleet were protected by destroyers and motor gunboats, anticipating German e-boats. Those fast, small craft could do lots of damage while avoiding its own. Fortunately, none were spotted. When the ships laden with infantry were about 12 miles from shore, the men on board got up and began to pile into their respective landing craft. But not so the men of Number 3 Commando, who again had made this entire journey already in their landing craft. And amongst the shivering, drenched, now nervous men were 40 U.S. Rangers assigned to Number 3 Commando. Protecting these men as they got closer to landfall was a heavily armed steam gunboat, and on board was this group of ships' leader, Commander Derek Wybird, and the commando leader, Dunford Slater. All around this flotilla were other boats, and the destroyers HMS Brocklesby and Slazak of the Free Polish Navy. In all, there were now 23 of these smaller boats grouped together, carrying the troops to beaches Yellow 1 and 2. But there had been more ships. First, an air raid had delayed their departure from New Haven, but when they got underway, Wybird ordered full speed, as his men were also tied to the tight time schedule. Still, the max speed that he had ordered was too much for four of the vessels. They fell behind. At 3.40 a.m., still 70 minutes from zero hour, all appeared to be on time, and the men of this far eastern group were safe, with the destroyers crossing back and forth in front of them, providing a shield. Then, all hell broke loose, and Dieppe began to unravel. Seven minutes later, at 3.47 a.m., a star shell went up and cast a bright light on that night's work. Anyone on shore near the designated Yellow Beaches 1 and 2 would have had no trouble spotting the many ships approaching land. You can guess what happened next. Sub-Lieutenant David Lewis, in landing craft personnel, or LCP-15, a landing craft that was headed for Yellow Beach 2 and was in the lead in the starboard column, said, 
They were immediately enveloped in the hottest tracer fire I have ever seen. The air was filled with the whine of ricochets and the bangs of exploding shells. The next part is predictable enough as well. Sub-Lieutenant Lewis watched, he had no other choice, as man after man began to fall around him. For a second, Lewis wondered if their escorts, the Slazak and Brocklesby, the destroyers, was firing on them by mistake. But they were not. They were actually guilty of something just as bad, as they were four miles out in front and thus unable to engage whoever was firing at Number 3 Commando. The source of the killing shells had just come from the escorts of a small German convoy, which had left Boulogne and was now headed for Dieppe. This was bad enough, certainly unplanned for, but next came something worse. Commodore Hughes Hallett had ordered that if any enemy shipping was encountered, then the ships were to lay smoke and retreat. But Commander Wybird, in command of Group No. 5, the ships heading for Yellow Beach, had decided for himself that if trouble did come, he would ignore the orders and proceed regardless. And with that, his ships kept heading right for the shore and the guns now firing on them. Back on Sub-Lieutenant Lewis's ship, he watched again as man after man fell around him. But it would be Commander Leader Dunford Slater who got to witness something even more terrifying, even for a commando. As he went to dive behind an armor plate, he found that he could not get in close behind the metal. Why? Because there were ten bodies there already. They had had the same idea, but when they popped their head up over the armor, they were hit. And LCP-87, another ship and its crew and passengers, had their own hell. As the star shell had lingered, its light had given the Germans enough time to pick out their targets. One such, an e-boat, went after LCP-87. Though its first shell missed, flying over the vessel, the second shell from the e-boat, better aimed, did not. It went into the cabin and exploded. Three ratings were killed, the naval officer in charge was badly wounded, and a few more officers were wounded to the point that they would not see the sun rise. Just before the naval officer in charge of LCP-87, Mr. Kenwood, died, he told a sergeant to turn for home and make best speed. But after that, he fell silent for the last time. This limited naval battle went on for another ten minutes or so. But in those ten minutes, all surprise for Jubilee was lost. LCF-1 used its gun to mix with an armed German merchantman. The crew wanted to aim their guns at a nearby e-boat, but it was simply too fast and maneuverable to hit. Still, the merchantmen they engaged with started smoking and then caught fire. As for the ship Dunsford Slater was on, SGB-5, his was dead in the water. The engine was knocked out, as were the guns. So, the commando leader and the survivors around him simply waited for one last shell to send them home, permanently. But it never came. The Germans had been caught off guard as well and did not realize the size of the enemy fleet in the area. So it had been decided by them to just fight their way through and make for Dieppe. Group 5, again the ships heading to Yellow Beach, had just lost four more of their numbers. 
Those ships had been ordered, if possible, to limp back home. It was better than being caught here when the sun came up. Five other ships had circled around SBG Number 5. Again, the local command ship was full of dead and dying men. Not much left for a command center. As for the rest of Group 5, who could say? Dunford Slater could not see any other ships around him, nor could he see the second-in-command, Captain Peter Young. Which meant that Dunford Slater would have to lead the assault on Yellow One Beach himself. Of course, he would report later that day, there was no chance of landing until well after daylight and very little chance of finding the beaches. So much for the element of surprise. But dealing with what was in front of them, or rather what was left, Wybird ordered a few LCPs to take SGB-5 back home to New Haven. And as the radio was just as dead as the engines and guns, Wybird could tell Hughes Hallett nothing. No, they would have to go find him and report in person. So Wybird and Dunsford Slater transferred to another LCP to go looking for the HMS Kalp. As for LCP-87, that journey had taken five hours to get back home, which gave the very few survivors on board time to line up the dead on their deck, except for those two ripped apart by enemy shot and shell. Of course, all of the ships of Jubilee had seen the star shell go off, and this upset the vast majority of them, as they still had one hour before the men on their ships were to reach the beaches. Truscott, again the leader of the 50 U.S. Rangers, wrote of this moment, Grave faces on board the Fernie. Now that surprise was lost, the enemy would be waiting at his guns to greet the landing troops. And as Jubilee is a classic case of what not to do, here's another aspect that hopefully will never be repeated. None of Hughes Hallett's ships had detected the German vessels on their radar, but the Portsmouth station had and logged it in accordingly. The Admiralty was warned and a message was sent to the HMS Fernie, the backup command ship. The warning was found in the ship's logs, but for whatever reason, Hughes Hallett never mentioned it when he was writing his memoirs years later. And then it got worse. It can always get worse. When the unexpected naval engagement started, it was when the men were climbing down to their transfer craft, and thus the larger ships were immobilized by this. But those in the middle and western part of the fleet knew that whatever was going on over there in the east, surely the escorts, the Brocklesby and Slazak, could set things right, which again was not the case, as they were still far out ahead of the LCPs. Why? Because they got bored of going slow and decided to speed up. Getting back to Hughes Hallett, as the smaller ships, full of commandos, were getting ever closer to shore, it was more or less true to say it was too late to recall them, and Hughes Hallett would later write that he was hoping or guessing that the Germans, even after all this, would not think that a major incursion was coming, but rather perhaps a small British patrol had run into a German convoy. It happened regularly. And indeed, this is what the Germans had thought at first. And yet, as it appeared to be an enemy naval force out there, the guns of the Goebbels and Hess batteries were notified to help take out those British vessels. 
Either way, the next message to Runchet's office in Paris is predictable enough. At 5 a.m., it read, Troops have intensified their lookout. Air and Navy authorities have been advised. And just like that, the Germans were awake, expecting trouble, and soon would have all the light they needed to shoot at the just over 200 ships off the coast of Dieppe. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So uh, I just want to say hi to the newest members and those that have donated. I appreciate it very much. Let's see here. In no particular order of importance, because you're all winners to me. I said that with a straight face. Let's see here. There's uh, Richard Makoid, who donated and became a member. Richard, thank you very much. He's from Southampton Township, New Jersey. Now, I love New Jersey. Thank you, Richard. Uh, Laura, is that Hems? Hemmies? From Fort Wayne, Indiana. Sorry, Laura. Uh, but that's my mom's name, so I like you too. David uh, Di Pietro from Ransomville, New York. I probably went a little heavy on the accent there. Sorry, David. And then the coolest name in the world, Colton Hecker from Sydney, Montana. Colton, that's just a badass name. So that I, I, was neat. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Anthony DeLuca from Houston, Texas. So thank you very much, Anthony. As far as those who have made donations, some of you put comments in there, and I really appreciate that because it gives me something to react to. So first of all, there's Hillary Stroud. Um, I'm glad I could help with the long drives. Again, Richard McCoyd, McCoyd uh, donated and became a member. Bruce Anthony I'll simply say to you, Bruce, can't stop, won't stop. He'll know what I mean. Uh, Scott Hendricks, um, and I just want to say to Scott, and I love you, random citizen. Uh, there's a movie reference in there. And finally, James Skinner made a donation. So thank you very much for this. I did get a lovely email from a Samuel Pauls, and I'll just say to Samuel, you keep listening I'll keep recording. Okay, so again, thank you for uh, everybody who's supporting the show. Certainly in these trying times, it is more appreciated than I can say. So I will see you again soon now that DF has started to go off the rails. Uh, we'll see what happens next. Take care, everyone.